Wonderful. Well, we're back in Luke's Gospel, so if you'd like to turn to um, Luke chapter 19. And I'm actually going to recap a little bit of what Andy did last Sunday. So I'm going to start from verse 41 and then read through to um, verse 8 of chapter 20. So uh, it's page 1054 in the Chapel Bibles. I think the tag should be in the right place for the large print ones, but um, page 1054. Luke chapter 19, uh, picking up from verse 41. And uh, let's have a word of prayer before I, uh, before I read. Um, Father, we thank you for your, your word this morning. We've just been thinking about authority. And uh, Father, we believe that this word has supreme authority. Uh, this is not just a, a, a book of wisdom. This is your book, inspired by you. Uh, sharper than a double-edged sword. It's your divine revelation. And so it carries supreme authority for us. And Father, I pray this morning that our hearts and minds will be open and attentive and that we would hear your voice. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Luke 19, verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So as we've been um, tracking Jesus's journey through Luke's gospel over these past weeks and months, we've kind of arrived at this point where Jesus is arriving into Jerusalem and as he approached Jerusalem and sees the city, uh, he weeps over it. He's heartbroken as he looks down on the city of Jerusalem. This is not just, um, you know, shedding a tear. Uh, he is heartbroken uh, over the city as he, as he looks down. And so we have to ask the question, well, why is, why is Jesus heartbroken over the city of Jerusalem? What is it that's that's breaking his heart. Uh, the psalmist in um, 
Psalm 119 verse 136 uh, wrote this. He said, streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. Uh, Paul writing to the church in Rome, chapter 9 and verse 2, um, thinking about his, his own people, the Israelites. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Jesus approaches Jerusalem and his, his heart is broken because it's a heart um, filled with love. I uh, often refer at the moment to this uh, description of God's heart from Exodus chapter 34, the first time that God uh, just reveals himself uh, to Moses First time in the Old Testament where God actually says, this is, this is my character. This is the essence of who I am. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's, that's the heart of God. He goes on, uh, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's a God of justice. He's a holy God. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. It's interesting. I've read this at um, Hope Explored on Tuesday evening. And um, immediately, immediately, what do you think? What do you think somebody picked up on from that description of God's character? The one thing that they picked up on was he punishes the children and their children to third and fourth. That was the thing that immediately resonated rather than compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and, and, and sin. You know, it's an amazing description of God's character. And yet the one thing that somebody jumped on immediately was he punishes the children and their children to the third and fourth generation. That's terrible. Actually, in the original Hebrew, the word generation isn't there. It's an insertion from the translator. It just has the numbers. And it's the contrast between maintaining love to thousands punishes to the third and the fourth. You know, which is the bigger number? He's a God of justice. He has to judge. That's his character because he's a holy God. He has to punish He has to judge because if you love, you care. But he loves to thousands, forgiving wickedness. So Jesus approaches Jerusalem and his heart is broken because because that is his heart. It's a heart of love. And he walks into a city that is is rejecting him. A city that has turned its back on him. He's going to, you know, to to the elders, the chief priests, the ones who were the, you know, the gatekeepers for uh, God's kingdom. And yet they're the ones who have rejected him. And that's why his heart is broken, because he can see the consequences of their rejection. I think Andy said last, you know, last Sunday, you know, in AD 70, the Romans had had enough and they finally marched in and, you know, just wiped Jerusalem off the face of the earth. After it was destroyed, uh, you could draw a plough. You could draw a plough across Jerusalem without it getting stuck on anything. So flattened was Jerusalem. And Jesus, as he approaches Jerusalem, he can see that. He can see that that's what's going to happen. And his heart is broken. And what motivates him to come into the city, what motivates him to die is this 
It's just this extraordinary love that even though he's going to be crucified, he still comes and his heart is still broken. And I'm, you know, as we think about our purpose as a church community and we think about our purpose as a community of people who, you know, we're here to seek and save the lost. You know, that's why Jesus said he had come. And when Jesus returned to his father in heaven, he gave that mission to us, to his people, to seek and save the lost. And what motivates us? You know, Alison was just saying about, you know, talking to, you know, to Lou about, you know, you know, why do I, you know, why go to church? Or, you know, have I got to go to church? You know, is it something I've got to do on a Sunday morning? You know, our, our motivation for coming to this place should be because we love God and we love God because he first loved us. And our, our motivation for seeking the lost should be that, that our hearts are broken. Our hearts are broken for lost. The lost are going to a lost eternity. They're going to a lost eternity. Those that we know and love in this village who don't know Christ are heading for a lost eternity. Do we, do we weep for them? Do we weep for those who are lost? Um, the beginning of um, John's gospel, uh, uh, John writes this. He said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You know, that's what the scripture says. If we don't believe in Christ, it's not that God is going to condemn us, it's that we're condemned already. Jesus came to save us from condemnation. That's why Paul writes in Romans at the beginning of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. There was condemnation. We were under God's wrath. We were under condemnation. But now, because of Jesus, there is no condemnation. Do we weep for those who are lost? Do we weep for those around us who, who are under the judgment of God, who are under God's righteous wrath? Do we weep? One of the things I... You know, I, I pray for is that, you know, God would, you know, I'd have God's heart for the lost. That that would be what motivates me to want to reach the lost with the gospel. Because they're heading for a lost eternity. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he can see the consequences of their rejection of him. There are consequences for rejecting Jesus Christ. Let's pray that God would give us, let's pray now. Just for a moment that God would share his heart with us for the last. Father, forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our half-heartedness. Forgive us for not caring. Not caring for those around us who are heading for a lost eternity. We become so familiar and so complacent with our own salvation that we forget what it is that we've been saved from. We'd say from sin and death, Father, even now by your Holy Spirit, would you just impart to us, your people, a fresh compassion for the lost. Holy Spirit, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Let that be the motivation that leads us to seek and save the lost as it led your son, Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.
So Jesus comes into Jerusalem with a broken heart and uh, he knows that uh, the people who should be welcoming him are plotting to kill him. Uh, um, uh, Verse 47, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. And he knows that he knows he's going to the cross. And uh, what does he do facing this opposition, facing this threat to his life? Uh, what's he do? He's in the temple every day teaching. The beginning of chapter 20, uh, he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel. He's still preaching the gospel. He's still preaching the good news, even though there are people plotting to take his, his life. He doesn't, he doesn't look at the threat and think, oh, I better keep quiet. Uh, I better hide. Uh, you know, I better tone down the message and make it more palatable. Uh, you know, maybe if I stop healing people on the Sabbath, that will, you know, that will help a bit. And maybe if I stop challenging them. No, he's like, he's still there in the midst of it, in the midst of this threat, teaching and preaching the gospel. Why is he still preaching the gospel in the face of this? Because it's good news. That's what, and it doesn't change. It's, it's always good news. And it's, the good news is that there's a problem and it's the problem of sin which cuts us off from God and the good news is he's come to provide a solution he's come to provide forgiveness and we live you know we live in a culture that more and more and more rejects the gospel and it rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ and more and more churches are under pressure not to preach the gospel and there are you know in some places there are literally people plotting to kill those who preach the gospel uh, just read about it every day in the Release International Prayer Diary of people who are facing death because they preach the gospel. But they don't stop. You know, in our culture, there's huge pressure. That, uh, our, we have, we're in a culture which, which loves the church when it does social action. You know, we, our culture, it loves um, food banks. That's okay. Loves street pastors. That's okay. Loves mums and toddlers groups. Most of the mums and toddlers groups in the country are run by churches and our society loves that debt advice centers you know all of that stuff the church you know our culture loves and says well that's okay but to preach a message that actually you are you are dead in your sins and you need to repent and come to Christ that's unacceptable Uh, there's a king on the throne it's a king who's been on the throne ever since Adam and Eve, and it's the king of the selfish human heart. And more than ever in our culture, in our society, we have enthroned ourselves. And in at the moment, it's going to extreme lengths that it says, actually, you, 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 have, you have authority to be whoever you want to be. Whoever you feel you should be, whatever gender you feel you are, you have absolute authority to be that person. And if anyone challenges that, well, that's the sin. That's what's unacceptable. That's what's unforgivable. Uh, You may be aware at the moment sort of uh, going through Parliament is this um, uh, conversion uh, thing to ban conversion therapy. To ban conversion. A very extreme form of it has already gone through in um, Canada. I have a friend in in Canada. And so if if someone were to come to... Uh, my friend in Canada as a pastor, if someone were to come to him and say, you know, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, will you pray with me? Will you pray with me because I'm struggling with this issue? If my friend were to pray with him, he could go to prison for five years. 
That's the current law in Canada. If someone objected, and it needn't be the person, if someone found out that my friend had prayed with this person because they were struggling with same-sex attraction, if someone found out that this, my friend could be accused of breaking the law and go to prison for five years. And uh, we haven't quite got there yet in this country, but that's the direction in which we are, that's the direction in which we are headed Jesus always preached the gospel because it was the gospel, no matter what came against him. And we just need to be aware that these are the days in which we live. And if we remain faithful in preaching Christ and preaching the truth revealed in God's holy word. You know, there's a reason the Bible isn't just called the Bible, it's called the Holy Bible. Because it, it contains the very presence of God, the holiness of God. And the gospel is about, you know, it's about liberation. It's about freedom. It's about, Jesus said, I've come to bring life and life in all its fullness. And the, the tragedy is that our, our culture thinks that by giving all of these freedoms and saying, well, you can be whoever you want. You can create yourself in your own image. That will bring life in all its fullness. And it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Which is why, even though we're living in this culture... There's just an epidemic of mental illness. There's an epidemic of insecurity. There's an epidemic of anxiety. Because when we put ourselves on the throne, we actually realise we can't control the kingdom that we're trying to create. It's only Jesus because he's the king. And so we we need to be prepared that as the days go on, it will become more costly to preach Christ and Christ crucified. It will become more costly to tell people that they are... They're dead in their sins and they need to repent and turn to Christ. That is not a message that our society wants to hear. But that's the gospel. That's where true freedom is to be found. And yes, we do it gently. We do it with respect. But we do it with um, uh, uncompromisingly because the gospel doesn't change. Uh, We can't soften the gospel to make it more palatable to our society it is what it is. So our motivation must be the, the love of God. The love of God who weeps for those who have rejected him. We must have a determination that no matter what the cost, we keep preaching the good news. We keep preaching the gospel. Jesus is right there with people milling around him, plotting how to kill him. And he's teaching and preaching the good news. Because some will hear. And he does it with authority, he has this conversation with the, um, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They're, they're just trying to find some way of condemning him, some way of condemning him to death. And they say, well, what, you know, what authority, by whose authority are you doing this? And by asking them about John's baptism, he's not kind of being awkward or being difficult. He's just trying to get them to realise something that is blindingly obvious. Because if they'll answer his question, they'll have answered their own question. John's baptism, was it from heaven uh, or from men? And, and they don't really want to say, but, you know, John the Baptist greeted Jesus as the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he baptised Jesus. And when Jesus was baptised, the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my son who I love. With him I am well pleased. And as he was baptised, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as, as a dove. So right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, three years earlier, it's been blindingly obvious with anyone with eyes to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And he has God's authority. 
But the chief priests and the teachers of the law don't want to recognise it because it, you know, it threatens them. It's not what they want to hear. But Jesus says, well, what do you think about John's baptism? What do you think about what John said about me, about John saying, uh, you know, now Jesus is here, the Messiah. I must become less and he must become more. Uh, Jesus has divine authority to do what he does. And uh, we have divine authority to do what we do. Um, Alison read before the, from the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. So go, make disciples, baptise, teach people everything that I have commanded you. You know, we, we do it with his authority. And we just, we need to know that. And we need to be sure of that when we preach the gospel and it's rejected. When we preach the gospel and people are offended and people say, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be saying these things. Well, we say, well, I'm saying them on God's authority. I have divine authority to say these things. And you can do what you, you know, you can do what you will. You can do what you want to me. But I can't stop saying what I'm saying because I'm doing it with divine authority. It's a divine commission. I just, in the worship at the beginning, as we were worshipping, I just had a, had a picture. A picture of, of the, and I just saw it, it was a, it was a picture of the chapel. And um, it was like a little island, and the island was on fire. There was this fire burning on the island, and it was just a sense of God's holiness, God's unchanging holiness, that he is a, he is a holy God, and he can't, he can't compromise his own nature. He can't stop being holy. He can't, he can't tone down his holiness in order to be a bit more loving and let people in under the wire. He can't soften either side he is holy and as a I just sense as a chapel community we must be resolute about seeking God's holiness and about seeking his glory that we can't compromise his nature any more than he can but around this um, I describe it as an island because around it was a moat and I, and I kind of thought you know often that's a bit you kind of think it was a bit defensive we're trying to shut people out but I just sense this moat, it was, the, it was a, a river of life. It was the, a river of the Holy Spirit around us. And you can, it's, it was very easy to pass through, um, but you can't pass through unchanged. You can't encounter the Holy Spirit and remain unchanged. You can't encounter Jesus Christ and remain unchanged. And I just had a sense of us as a church community being that, being that place of holiness. Anybody can come. But you can't come and not be changed. And this, it's almost like this, this river of protection around us, this river of the Holy Spirit around us, that as people, as people come, they come into a place of God's presence and a place where they are, where they are changed. And I think in, in these days in which we live, that's what the church has to be. It has to be a place of God's holiness, where we seek his face, where we come in humility before him but we come through this river of life uh, we come through Jesus Christ who gives us life and life in all its fullness and um, maybe we can just spend a, a bit more time in prayer uh, just praying these things into being in in us as a, as a community and just praying that we would have this heart 
of God's love, praying that we would be a holy people and praying that we would be uncompromising in presenting the gospel in the face of a society that has rejected it, praying that we would know God's authority. So let's just do that for a few few minutes. Let's just seek God's face. Seek God's face and pray out of that. Lord, you are you are holy. You are a holy God. And we seek your face. We seek your face. Lord, um, show us how to pray. Show us how to pray.